Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, I've got something a little different for you today. My conversation with my guest, Marie Garlock, was so rich and expansive that I divided it into two distinct episodes. This is the first of two. I first met Marie as an actor and writer in the theater scene, but that's only a tiny sliver of her arts practice. Marie Garlock, PhD, leads health, performance, collaborative research, and community-building initiatives that span the U.S. South and Global South. Marie is the director of It Is In You Projects and is based in Durham, North Carolina. It Is In You partners with people and organizations drawn together by the power of stories to promote health justice, including clinicians, artists, scientists, educators, policymakers, faith and advocacy leaders across diverse communities, institutions, and coalitions. For over a decade now, Marie Garlock has been creating performances based on collaborative, community-embedded research. She works with learners and luminaries of all demographics to facilitate workshops, organize festivals, and offer tailored programs in creative communication and health equity across the U.S. and internationally. Marie and I spoke about three of her many active projects. You'll hear me mention all three in this conversation, but our primary focus for this episode is the Flipping Cancer Project. Flipping Cancer is a performance installation in story, dance movement, and visual landscape created from interviews with people who face advanced cancers as patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers. The second episode with Marie, which will be released next week, covers the Lilies Project, which is an environmental justice project in Stokes County, North Carolina in the U.S., and the Burns Human Rights and Capabilities Project in Malawi, Africa. All three of these projects fall under the umbrella of health justice and performative story collaborations. You'll see links to everything in the show notes. One last thing before we jump in. This is difficult stuff. During this episode and the next, we talk about rampant injustice and inequities, life-threatening illnesses, racism, and other traumas. I'm grateful to Marie not only for the revealing and healing work that she does, but also for the grace, vulnerability, and humor that infuses all of her creative projects. I'm honored to celebrate the courage of Marie, her partners, and participants, and to celebrate the fact that art can be powerfully good medicine. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Marie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Now, Marie, you work on a wide range of projects, and we, we will talk about some of those in more detail in just a moment. But you gave me a great frame of reference to connect all of these various projects. You said that you bring people together around the power of stories to promote health justice. And I'd like to start our conversation there by unpacking that statement a little bit. What does health justice mean? I'm feeling as we begin 
this podcast. Gratitude to many teachers in the arts, in healthcare worlds, and in environmental justice worlds who have helped me learn more about what that is and how performance and stories can activate that. For health justice, we might shift that from in opposition, this idea of health philanthropy or health charity that might be a band-aid over some of the effects of inequity and injustice. Then health justice would be looking at root causes and um, what Ella Baker would call sort of the notion of radical in its etymology is to go to the root of something. So how do we radically reframe health as something that's not just the absence of disease, but takes in our understanding of people as um, our body selves. So something I've learned through interplay methods, um, which are about creating space to access our body's wisdoms and our story's wisdoms, is that our bodies are connected in at least five ways, and that's the physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. And when I facilitate classes in hospitals and community settings and universities, I'll often give a broader frame for the idea of spiritual to you that could mean a faith tradition or practice, a blend of them, what works for you, or um, no faith practice, but your sense of spirit as something bigger than you that moves through. So that can be your favorite poetry, being with a group of friends, walking in the woods. Mm. But understanding health as something that is a human birthright, actually. Um, And I'm reminded really of what health justice might be on this day of recording is Juneteenth, So the 150th anniversary of everyone getting the word about emancipation. So my understanding of health justice is about pointing out both the promise and the failure of the law Mm. to achieve that. For example, on this 150th anniversary of emancipation, fully for everyone actually getting it in reality and putting together today as I learn with students in a classroom emancipation, the word for that, even though the law was passed, was almost four years later. Right. And so this notion, too, of laws can help us in one way and cultural change and people coming together in excess of just the legal code is really going to be the necessary balance of those things. And tuning into the power of um, health justice and stories to ignite that, I'm thinking of Miss Callie Greer, who was beside Reverend Dr. Barber and the um, Moral Mondays fusion movements that have now become the national scope of the Poor People's Campaign. And they were giving testimony in Congress today at the same time as some slavery reparations hearings in another part of Congress. And her daughter passed away from stage four breast cancer, her daughter Venus. And she said it would cost $25 billion um, in year one of the federal budget to pay for all 14 states that lack Medicaid expansion. And in North Carolina, that's 500,000 people that lack access um, to Medicaid and could get it, mm-hmm. but for spite, basically. Mm-hmm. So between one and 2,000 people die every year just in our state because of lack of access to healthcare insurance coverage in, in that coverage gap. And she said that $25 billion to cover not one, but 14 states worth of people is the same amount as the military, the Pentagon, gives to Boeing in one part of an annual contract. And then she just leaned in and looked up and said, we shouldn't have to ask for this. Mm. We shouldn't have to ask for this. Or beg for this. Right. Yeah. And 
her her story as many other people that I've had the luck and grace and based on their generosity to interview as a part of um, what was initially the Moral Mondays movement or the HKNJ movement of people doing these disobedient installations and processions through government buildings, centering their stories, movement, poetry, song, um, as a way to tell the story of health justice is really what kind of echoes through my ongoing understanding Mm -hmm. of what would health justice look like. If we understand the justice component of that, I believe Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. And the sense too that you never achieve justice and then it's done and and it's sustained. Like it's always got to be reiterated and reclaimed and restored and maintained and so you know always growing and dynamic because there are going to be ongoing attacks at it and ongoing evolving needs and visions of people who can benefit most from our understandings of justice health justice kind of the components of racial and economic justice that go with that of environmental justice that go with that gender justice you know so many things can influence health and even if it's impossible to achieve and then you're done, we still have to go for the impossible and we'll get at least a little closer. So how does story fit in to this manifestation of mm-hmm. health justice? Because when I look at the communities that you work with on several of these projects, I think the question could come up, you know, these are serious, complex crises, right? Mm-hmm. And How does something that almost at first glance could seem trivial, like a story, Mm. really have an impact? Do people even want to engage in this when things are on fire Mm. in their lives? Is it low on the priority list? Mm. You know, all of these things that I can just imagine a group full of people being like, no, no, you know, this is never going to work. But I know based on your conversation and based on my experience – how impactful this can be. So talk to me about how how story kind of intertwines with mm. this movement towards health, health justice. So often we think of change as being made through the figures and the facts, mm-hmm. and that's what people will care about. And actually those go hand in hand with story, and they only are ever going to make sense through story, actually. I love this notion of stories, especially around health justice. Cheryl Mattingly talks about, who was a physical and occupational therapist um, who worked with kids facing cancer and other people at life-death thresholds. And she says that their sort of plots of their clinical stories are untidy and open-ended. So as I speak about this, I'm not attached to story as like, a, B, and C, it goes in a linear way, right. and we're done, and we tie a knot, you know, in the bow, and it's pretty and bite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but actually, that stories are this site for opening up imagination. And that's the core part, I think, of making social change through story performance, storytelling, story listening, is how, how people's flesh and bone and histories gets to actually matter and make sense to people who may not have lived it, or to be affirmed by people who, oh, that's my story too. Mm-hmm. Really the only way out of a lot of the ethical, cultural policy conundrums that sort of keep the you know health injustices going um, mm-hmm. in the U.S. and, and transnationally, globally, um, is a lack of imagination. And stories get us inside this other way of understanding. And the idea of um, 
enthymeme, for example, is like there's a gap, basically. So you would just be describing something if you said A, B, C, and then D is next. But if you say here's A and B, and by the end we're to D, mm -hmm. you're leaving the imagination component open for listeners to see themselves inside of that or to imagine, you know, how it got there. And that sort of almost like a circle or an embrace <laughs> of a story, I think is what brings people in to, oh, I have a family member who didn't go through that thing, but they went through something similar. I'm maybe now going to see you who I had seen as really separate from me. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a different race or class or partisan affiliation or faith or gender or sexuality, any of those things, immigration status. Seeing us separate somehow in that story space, it reaches something else that can connect us um, where people had otherwise been kind of entrenched mm -hmm. and divided. John O'Neill who is a just masterful storyteller and Black consciousness creator in New Orleans, speaks about the analogical components of stories and that we get a lot when we don't rely just on the logical. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of spaciousness and breath. I would say we get everything when we rely on that more often. Let's get into some of these projects that you're working on. So we're going to talk about three, and I'm just going to name them now so people can kind of track our conversation. The three that we're going to talk about are Flipping Cancer, Burns, Human Rights and Capabilities in Malawi, and the Lilies Project in Stokes County, North Carolina. So these are similar and different at the same time, and hopefully people will be able to draw those connections. Some are local, some are international, um, and some are kind of both. Why don't we start with flipping cancer? Can you talk about what that is, how you work with people? It is an honor to treat the priorities and stories, the harder knowledge, the absurdities, the graces of people facing advanced or stage four cancers. Their stories of stage four cancer are really the North Star of how to orient um, toward cancer in a systemic way, but also through this really intimate nuanced act of understanding specific patients' stories, specific healthcare provider stories, specific family caregiver stories, and putting them together in an arc of a live performance production in ways that help us kind of draw constellation points and connections. In Flipping Cancer, this is a um, story and theater-based, dance movement-based, and visual landscape installation and um, performance production, sort of a combo of those two. And I work in clinical education spaces in that with a team of amazing people. Mm -hmm. So Stacy Kirby, who is an incredible installation, um, visual and performance artist, curator as well, is the medical intake officer. And so adapted some of uh, her graphic design um, and kind of riffing on patient intake forms. Mm -hmm. So uh, people may come into a conference or medical school student body gathering for which the production is taking place and fill out some paperwork that says your medical history in five words or less. <sighs> Circle on this body chart, <laughs> you know, where, you know, fill in the blank thing is located for you today. Um, a person, a phenomenon, any other type of thing you're sort of carrying around with you that is on your mind or on your heart as you walk into this space. And uh, that often gets people 
even a little riled, actually, <laughs> to have to fill out paperwork because they're normally the ones giving right, others right, paperwork. Right. And, and they take paperwork really seriously. Right. So to be playful with it and ask, you know, for your medical history in five words or less. Because <laughs> these are me- these are medical professionals yeah. who are attending. And some of that then is used in the piece when we riff on kind of the overwhelming nature of medical paperwork and sort of the gaps in health insurance coverage that people with cancer, especially advanced cancers, experience um, and how overwhelming that is. Mm -hmm. So in one of the last performances of Flipping Cancer, um, basically the process happens through oral histories that I've conducted with people with stage four cancers who are patients, family caregivers, healthcare providers, many genders, racial, ethnic, and religious backgrounds. And then this work is drawing on a previous project called It Is In You, Health Justice Performance in Tanzania, in which I was finding a way to host conversations about the politics of international development, HIV AIDS, and the politics of sort of bodily representation about taboo issues. And that was from the position of being a college student who had studied abroad at the University of Dar es Salaam and saw all of these narratives of how people in the U.S. have the answers and the money and the resources when there is profoundly, of course, but everyone profoundly so much to learn about how performance can be a mode of mobilizing people versus pacifying them, of all kinds of values that we really don't have manifest in our society here in the U.S. that in Tanzania I, I got to steep in as mm-hmm. a young person. And all of these stories kept welling up out of me when I would come home and people would say more flattening mm-hmm. things about, you know, did a giraffe come eat your dinner off your plate? Right. Are there ATMs? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was in a city far larger than Raleigh-Durham. Like, <laughs> um And so I was guided in that process to do what I learned to be uh, kind of a collaborative one-person performance um, of oral histories and critical ethnography. And as a white woman, and then a recent college student at that time, I was putting my body in that bridge and gap between how people perceive health justice educators, performers, students leaders in various social movements in Tanzania from the United States. And so kind of how do I act as this bridge and honoring, even as I'm sharing voices that are not my lived Mm -hmm, experience, mm -hmm. but to use that space in a way to give thanks and then to sort of problematize and and trick back on some tropes of of whiteness. So Mm -hmm. I also, in that piece, as well as then later in Flipping Cancer, do kind of one caricature per <laughs> performance. Um, so in the one in Tanzania, it was around uh, a white tourist who's you know, upset at being objectified um, <laughs> for standing out, right, right. <laughs> and among other much worse things. And in the flipping cancer piece, my one sort of caricature is riffing back on what the dominant narrative is, basically. So that's my one that is not based on oral histories. All of the rest of the piece is based on oral histories that I conducted. That one caricature piece is a pink gala lady. Mm-hmm. So um, she's got a little bit of Oprah's, like, game or, you know, TV show host, like, look under your chair. Right, right. <laughs> like, prizes for everyone. Uh, and 
trying to open the space for why do we treat cancer in this health philanthropy way versus health justice way? And I mentioned the project in Tanzania also because not only did I learn about through mentors at UNC, um, Della Pollock, Renee Alexander-Craft, especially Joseph Meagle, who directed uh, the piece in its growth. Yeah, mentorship from all over uh, about kind of how we can perform listening through performing those interviews in a storytelling theater movement installation way. I also learned in that process about bringing in people at each site where it was. So I do that also with Flipping Cancer. So in Flipping Cancer, I will partner with the hospital or the medical school or the hosting conference. It might be clinical pastoral education conference. So people that are across all in new faith traditions, you know, going to be um, chaplains and certified in that. I will hold workshops in interplay methods, uh, which are about creating kind of openness and affirmation through structured improvisation uh, with our story information, bodily movement, which in other settings you could say dance, right. but in the U.S. people are too afraid. Um, they think <laughs> dance is an exclusive category, not something that everyone with a body right. <laughs> can do. People would run away, run. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have seen people with limited mobility dance with their eyes. Mm. So story, dance, vocal, and breath practice, and having these ways for people who often think, I don't do any of those things <laughs> to actually come in and access some of their really moving wisdoms about being patients and family caregivers. And then in a separate workshop, I'll co-host uh, healthcare providers. They might be faculty, they might be working at a hospital, they might be running you know, the program to train other um, pastoral counselors. And the space that they can create together in these healthcare storytelling and stress relief workshops, which are so named because... That's how you get people to come, right. <laughs> as you say, stress relief <laughs> in <Right>. clinical settings. <laughs> they find that for clinicians, they are so often, they're in charge so much, and they're expected to know the answer so much throughout their days that what they love most is actually to be playful with other people. That's not something that they're asked to do right. very often. And so the physicians liked less the chance to, um, or overall clinicians across fields actually have liked less the chance to be seen as an individual. Whereas with patients and family caregivers, they're told about themselves all the time, especially within the hospital space. Like, this is what your body means. Here are some numbers to lay on top of your body. And here's right. their significance. And it's all this medical vocabulary, which is important and not the only vocabulary. We have we experience cancer as as anything, especially health related. Again, as the physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. So to give that creative space for them, I have seen patients and family caregivers absolutely are yearning for and appreciative of each other's witness to share what their story truths are. And some of the most fun with that has been actually to create space for laughter and storytelling around the most absurd things <laughs> that have happened in their cancer care experience that often you don't get an outlet for. Mm -hmm. It being, um, this is actually an oral history interview that begins uh, the flipping cancer piece, but saying, you know, it was Christmas Eve and my appendix ruptured from Avastin and as many other people with breast cancer. So I'm in the ER for 11 hours. And of course, 
I am how I am with time. So I had people, once I finally was in the hospital room, uh, bring me my presents. I still needed wrap. (laughs) So I'm zooming all around the room, going too fast, say the nurses. And something that's hooked into me pops out and blood starts splurting everywhere. So, you know, I wiped the wrapping paper off and some of them I had to get some new and that was a someone um, experiencing stage four breast cancer having in the interplay workshops, um, which can be standalone leading up to the production, or they can be rehearsal for people who want to participate in the upcoming production. Basically, we then take interplay forms, such as something called gesture choir, mm-hmm. where you have kind of a flock of people. And if it's a U or a, a V, like a flock of birds, one person will share a glimpse into one of their stories that they've created through a much longer process, but we are able to distill down to also support them in having a clear and connected uh, experience in expressing their story with a short amount of rehearsal time. Mm-hmm. So they'll stand at the front of the V and uh, expand something into both physical language and verbal language. So people say that cancer is, and then they'll fill in the blank. Here's what I know about cancer might be the next one. One of the most absurd things that happened, or they don't even have to frame it that way. They might say, I remember when fill in the blank with a glimpse of a story. And then what I want to see change in cancer worlds is, and when they put, each person puts that into the physical language as well. It may come at the same time as the verbal or before or after. The rest of the flock is fanned out behind them and they echo that physical Mm -hmm. language. And so that's both a way for the audience to receive the expanse and interconnectedness Mm -hmm. of these stories. It's not just attached to the one individual. And it's also a way for each of the participants, say there's five or seven on rotation um, as local cancer patients, family caregivers, healthcare providers, to feel the echo and really the solidarity of others who have experienced their own sort of parallel connection. Mm -hmm. So to have their individual experience seen, validated, and also feel the community experience Mm -hmm. of that. Where are people on the other side of this? So Mm -hmm. when you talk to participants who have experienced what you are talking about, what do they say? What what are the things they want to do next? Through sharing some of the stories in Flipping Cancer, some of them have gotten braver about saying this, but I'll offer it usually at the end if there's a dialogue afterward. My mom, Barbara, faced stage four cancer for almost seven years. And I learned so much in that process um, through her experiences and all of these stories that kept spilling forth um, in the, you know, chemo infusion room at Home Depot where she's getting some paint chips <laughs> and she's counseling someone whose family member has cancer and they're crying and holding hands. Um, so a lot of that sort of sense of the importance of sharing underrepresented experiences about cancer, ones that are less pretty ones that are more politically connected, about healthcare access, about not poisoning communities, particularly communities of color and lower income communities. Uh, There are several pieces in the performance about coal ash waste, um, fracking, and the ways that um, oil and gas and coal companies 
are some of the main sponsors of pink ribbon breast cancer movements Mm. at the very same time as they're treating the stories of people living in what are called environmental justice communities of concern or environmental health sacrifice zones, essentially, from how it's zoned. They're treating the people's stories of dealing with cancer and a bunch of other health issues because of, for example, coal ash waste as anecdotes Hmm. that don't matter. So we don't have to listen to it because it's a story. And when court cases are trying to buy people out and then say, you cannot tell your story if we bring water pipelines to your home, that shows you the actual power of their story. Right, right. And when people are speaking about healthcare access from the position of facing cancer. So some of the pieces in um, the Flipping Cancer performance, I hope to honor and bring into the space Dr. Charlie Vanderhorst, who very sadly recently passed away suddenly, um, but was the real face of the Poor People's Campaign and before that Moral Mondays of the White Coats delegation of doctors and nurses getting arrested and doing die-ins inside of the governor's mansion and old state capitol building inside of offices and the rotunda at the NC General Assembly. So I'll share and perform forth one of his speeches, which is basically speaking about how if a gun were being held to patients' heads, doctors would intervene. Mm. And these policies are holding a gun to hundreds of thousands of patients' heads. Mm. So we as doctors must intervene. And that sort of intensity of linking all of those things in one space as well as the humorous, the chance for speaking about how one may not be a survivor, that may not fit their narrative, especially for stage four cancers. It's this really ambivalent, confusing space that once you get a cancer diagnosis, you are now a cancer survivor, which people don't always feel able to embrace, right? So there are all these things that can be taboo in different places, but our goal to put them together and to do that through Um, some dance and movement adaptation, as well as the oral history, as well as some visual art in the space, music and otherwise. I actually partner with Reverend Stacey Grove, who is a sound healing musician, among other things, and an interfaith chaplain. She offers the soundscape for the performance as well as for the workshops. And so she'll do sound baths for people with giant singing bowls and gongs and all of these things, should they wish Mm -hmm. that at the end. Bringing all of these modalities and forms of story and movement and symbol into that space that is so often clinical and fill in the blank. Here's the information. Some people are resistant at first, which is understandable because it's brand new often, especially for a clinical education space. And other people, I will say at the past performance in October, 2018 for the coping with cancer symposium, uh, with Lineberger and the UNC Cancer Network and the Mountain Area Health Education co- um, Collaborative, basically continuing ed for doctors and other healthcare professionals. 10 or 12 people who were clinicians came up in tears and hugged me mm-hmm. for a long time. And I had never experienced quite that depth of physical embrace, expression of grief, and having that sort of ability to have a container that is open to hold it and that the lid's not going to be put on right right away. I've had with pastoral counselors who of course are the very best type of audience. Their whole profession is to listen and tune in. (laughs) Um, They're just so magnanimous. But some folks 
would say afterward, I didn't know you were allowed to say that. <laughs> right. That's what strikes me about what you're saying is you're breaking open conversation in this mm-hmm. really important way. Mm-hmm. Things We can talk about things. You can talk about your truth. You can speak it into this place and it is okay. There are other ways that we can approach this. Mm-hmm. And I think there is this weird sense of appropriateness Mm. that is overlaid in the health conversations. It's like, we're allowed to talk about these things, but not these things. We're allowed to have this experience, but not this experience. And even when we're facing life and death situations, there's still a reluctance to cross that threshold of agreed upon topics, Mm. you know, and behaviors. It limits so many things. I I think it limits healing Mm. to not be able to step fully into the fullness of that experience that you're talking about. That is so very much one of the primary goals of the Flipping Cancer Project is to have that dialogic, dialogue-based witnessing for things that we thought weren't allowed or Mm -hmm. uh, are too messy I had one physician who has served in a mentoring capacity for several parts of this project and has you know, a PhD in anthropology and religion, was an ER doc <laughs> for a few decades, uh, Barry Saunders at UNC. Um, he said so much of the clinical experience, even after, after death or something really intense like a surgery, there's a giant mess everywhere, actually. Right. But workers that are often invisible are the ones who come clean it up. Right. In the hospital space. It's like it never happened. Right. <laughs> but it happened. It, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so through much guidance from participants in the project. So I mentioned Stacey Kirby has come on more recently in the last several of them. Also as a production assistant who gets my multi-layered self uh, to places on time. <laughs> <laughs> and if any of you know me who are listening, you know that's such a feat. <laughs> She, she partners in the ways described. Stacey Grove does the sound healing music components um, and is also there for support for participants as a trained chaplain and interfaith um, pastoral counselor to really hold that space with such magnanimity as well. And then Andrew Sinowitz, who is my sweetheart and an incredible photographer, visual designer. And then Alex Manus, who is just the guru of all tech problem solving. <laughs> <laughs> the best energies um, are some of the folks who have been involved. And in that process, we have all had different angles on different people's experiences. So in in their guidance, in the patient caregiver, healthcare provider guidance, in collaboration with a, a performance collective called the Hurston Critical Performance Ethnography Collective, UNC with Joseph Meagle in, in directing and coursework and many mentors and collaborators, I finally was able to put this image that I had dreamed of and sketched so many times while my mom, who I was very lucky to have as a best friend, because I know not everyone is born into that type of situation where you can be <laughs> related in a nuclear family way. Right. <laughs> best and also be best friends. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so that was really lucky <laughs> for us to be Twin flames and connected um, in the ways in the ways we were and complementary to each other in the ways we were, but when she was first dealing with a stage four cancer diagnosis at forty six that was not detected by a mammogram, nor was the stage one cancer, which was potentially even unrelated. They don't quite know uh, that you know two years earlier um, was not detected 
by mammogram, you know, so we have these ways that technology has failed, but that it's also the solution, the ways that numbers, your life really feels like it is writing on these tumor marker numbers that you get in the mail or you get a phone call about, or you get in the clinic. And that's, that sort of gives this arc or this graph where you're supposed to find yourself. And she was always so much more than that. So vibrant, so open, really used advocacy and um, training to be a pastoral counselor herself, actually, as this framework for serving others who are suffering in what she would call the sacred space of their bravery to welcome you into their circumstance of mm-hmm. suffering, and also their their bounty and their dignity and all of the things that they are beyond the situation of suffering they may be in in that moment. And she taught so many people so many things in those seven years, and multiple times I would sketch or have a dream about a tiger inside of a cage who had like a carrot in front of a horse, but a a graph of Ah. numbers of tumor markers sort of clipped Mm -hmm. (laughs) right outside of it. And this being that should never be caged, (laughs) right? Right. Um, Inside moving around. And so one adaptation of that is into this uh, dance and movement piece that is now at the end of uh, the flipping cancer performance as it has evolved. And all of the um, costume materials, the objects, the props, the pamphlets about effects of chemotherapy that I (laughs) spread all over the stage. I work a lot with Duke's History of Medicine Library. They have Flap Anatomy. Dr. Jules Wendell James was a mentor in a performing science seminar way back when, um, where I discovered this love of visual art in anatomical form. And that's a lot of the visual language of the flipping cancer piece. All these things get strewn throughout the stage by the end. Mm. And it's very messy. And all that remains is this cage or crate. And actually traveling with the piece was always fun to try and procure. Right, right. (laughs) The largest dog crate possible, right? (laughs) Um, But by the end, there's this number graph that's been referenced earlier, clipped to that cage and crate. And these elastic fabric materials that I hook one arm in and one leg in, and then I'm immersed in that cage and crate. And what happens within it as I'm doing this dance upside down and through but trapped and toward toward the end um, in the exit that happens with that dance and movement piece and this push and pull and tug and tethering and untethering, but still tethered um, with with this cage and my own dancing body, which I hope is not seen as just me by that point. I I want to become many people's uh, space for seeing their own story mm-hmm. at that point. And that's what so many people with stage four cancers have taught me is that when they would go into public spaces and people could tell they were facing cancer, so many people look at them and see their family member who has faced that. So when an interviewee would say, I get to be all of these people it's such an honor Mm. and it's sometimes overwhelming and it's mostly an honor um and by the end sort of with the exit with that dance and movement piece so many people have seen different things in that dance piece and it's projected onto the scrim behind also because of this idea of a clinical gaze. Um, It's filmed live and projected. And one director of pastoral care and clinical pastoral education at UNC hospitals 
his wife had just passed away from stage four cancer. Or as I've come to say, learning from people who loved my mom, Barbara, had had their lift off mm-hmm. <laughs> from their human form. <laughs> Because also I learned you can't say transitioned because some people will think transition gender. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I've had that a few times. Well, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. But that's not <laughs> That's right, not right. what happened in my particular situation. Yeah. Um, but he saw in this cage movement piece the tussle between the human form and what we are that exceeds that. And other people have seen this, the idea of how so many people with cancer are often policed or surveilled in terms of their emotional expression, if it's not positive and cheery, right, right. <laughs> which is so absurd. Like That is the space we need to be opening up right. for people. So to contain it and narrow it is wild and <laughs> to me, um, but they've seen it as not staying put in this way that people are are contained um, and, and that so many people dealing with life-threatening illness are our best teachers. Right. So how do we uncage that? Right. And let it be. Hey, friends. I'm excited to announce that our second full-length audio drama is in development The New Colossus is an original adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull, and it's gonna be amazing! We have a cast, we have a team, we have a script and recording days, and we are rolling! I'm asking you to support indie audio drama and artists. Please support the creation and production of this new work by becoming a patron of Artist Soapbox at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Patrons at the $3 a month level and up will also receive the inside scoop on our creative process, including interviews, secret documents, and more. That link again is patreon.com slash artistsoapbox, and I'll include it in the show notes. Your support makes a huge difference. Artist Soapbox has created nearly 100 hours of free content made available to listeners around the world. Please help us continue to make more. Thanks. Thanks.